How does the Lord want his church to be organized? What does the Bible say about the leadership of a congregation? Today we are going to take a look at what the Bible says about how the church should be organized, and then we'll also take a look at how the church is organized in different religions today, and whether or not that matches what the Bible teaches. So stay tuned! Welcome to the Bible Questions podcast, brought to you by BibleQuestions.org and the Holly Street Church of Christ. This podcast is dedicated to answering your Bible questions from the Bible. My name is Jeff, and along with Brian, we are the hosts of this program. Greetings, and welcome to today's Bible Questions podcast. Good morning, Brian. How are you doing? Hey, good morning. Great, Jeff. Thanks. When you look across the religious organization, particularly with Christian denominations, there's a lot of different ways they're organized, both the local level as well as a potential national or international level. I mean, if you think kind of globally, you know, there are some religious organizations that have these very large uh, hierarchies, central headquarters, uh, you know, Roman Catholic Church, for instance, in Rome, uh, Anglican Communion in London. Um, I understand there's a Lutheran World Federation in Geneva, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, upstate New York, uh, Mormons in Salt Lake City, not too far from where we live. Yeah, and all of those are just massive organizations these days. Exactly. Uh, with with a very large hierarchy, multiple layers, you know, et cetera. And of course, there are other groups that, you know, don't have a centralized headquarters, but, you know, groups of congregations will sometimes, you know, get together in some sort of a coordinating, collaborating body. I mean, I'm thinking like, you know, Southern Baptist Convention, you know, maybe a good example of that. And still others don't believe in what's sometimes called local church autonomy or each individual local congregation is independent of all the other congregations and refuse to recognize any sort of, you know, outside governing authority at all, you know, other than, of course, you know, Jesus in the scripture. So globally, you know, all different kinds of organizations. Um, and, you know, some people may say, well, that's fine. You know, each one kind of does what they feel is appropriate. Um, but as we'll kind of see a little bit later on, the scriptures do have something to say about that. Not only at the national or international level, but kind of at the local level too, you know, local congregations, local individual churches. Some, and here it's all different kinds of names and organizations I found. Uh, some are run or governed by a single person with various religious titles, like priest, father, or pastor, or bishop. Uh, different other groups require a plurality of leaders. Uh, you know, some might call them a board of deacons. I think that's popular within various Baptists. Uh, presbyters, elders, you know, a plurality of leaders. Of course, qualifications for the leaders, you know, vary widely all over the place as well. Quote, quote, some have to be ordained. Some must be unmarried. Must be married, you know, depending on the religious group. Some require men only. Some say women also. Um, some even allow active homosexuals. I mean, there's lots and lots of diversity. And as if that wasn't enough complexity, you know, some congregations and denominations will kind of align themselves with various, what I might call, non-church ministries. Some of those are operated under individuals or a board of directors or a president or, or whatever, you know, to offer a wide variety of semi-religious, pseudo-religious, uh, secular services. There's a non-member. A lot of different diversity uh, that we see. And of course, you would tend to think the Bible is, you know, silent on such a subject and, you know, different religious groups and, you know, do pretty much what they want to because perhaps they think, you know, Jesus is indifferent to how his church is physically organized and leaving all that up to the collective wisdom of men, you think. But, See, as we get into the podcast, the Bible is definitely not silent on this subject, and Jesus definitely does care about how his church as a whole, as well as individual congregations are organized and governed. Brian, I've been kind of talking quite a while. you have any uh, other introductory thoughts you want to add? Yeah, you know, like everything else, we practice spiritually and something that our listeners hear a lot uh, on this podcast is, you know, we just like every other subject, we have to ensure that we are organized according to the pattern in the New Testament, and we have to reject any other man-created or what we might call man-modified organizations. And that's really what it boils down to. So as we go along, Jeff, I think our listeners will see 
the Bible's very clear. And also, we really see God's wisdom in the structure and organization of the church. So I hope our listeners will will take a look at the information we present and, and also study it for themselves. Good point. Oh, with that sort of as a, a backdrop, why don't you go ahead and start us off with, you know, kind of down at a local level, local congregations, uh, and how they should be organized based on what we can learn from the scriptures. Yeah, everything that we see in the Bible really does center around the local church, the local congregation. And so when you look at what makes up a local congregation, it really starts with the saints. And unfortunately, you know, the Catholic Church has kind of changed or even reserved the word saint for, you know, only certain designated men that met certain requirements. When that's really not found in the Bible. The Bible doesn't make any distinction in the way that the Catholic Church is. And in fact, the Christian, the Bible, uh, calls all Christians saints. And so when we look at this Greek word saint, it comes from the Greek word hagios. And according to Vine's expository dictionary, it says the definition of this Greek word saint means in the plural, as used of believers, it designates all such and is not applied merely to persons of exceptional holiness or to those who have died were characterized by exceptional acts of saintliness. So they're kind of referring, uh, or Vines is here, is referring to what the Catholic Church has done. They've applied this to, quote unquote, persons of exceptional holiness in their eyes, where really the Bible uses as a general term for Christians, for those baptized believers. And we see a couple of examples of this, for instance, in Acts chapter 9, then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, he's speaking about Saul of Tarsus, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. Uh, We also see over in Romans chapter 15, here Paul says, but now I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints, for for it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. So these are just a couple of examples where we see that term saints used, but just so that everybody understands, we're talking about Christians uh, overall when we use the term saint. And so local churches are made up of local baptized believers or saints. Point. And at least at this very initial level, we recognize that, you know, within local congregation, of course, you know, you may have attending visitors and, and such and some members and young children, and et cetera. But at least in terms of, you know, those who are saved, as you indicated, a, a general term, saints, holy one. And, you know, there's other, you know, synonyms that we could find within the New Testament. But in some cases amongst the members, you know, we see within the New Testament some additional, I don't know if I want to say distinctions or roles or, or offices. And of course, one of the very first ones we see is that of deacons. Um, in Philippians uh, chapter 1, verse 1, you know, Paul mentions, talks about, and he's talking to, you know, all the saints at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. And so let's kind of focus on deacons for a little bit. Um, and, and of course, we have to be a little bit careful because, you know, different religious groups use that term for potentially different things. So we got to be careful, Bible, using Bible terms and Bible ways, et cetera. The Holy Spirit through Paul, you know, over in First Timothy, you know, talks to Timothy about deacons. And let me kind of set the stage a little bit. You know, first of all, it, back in chapter two of Second of 1 Timothy, sorry, he describes the role of, you know, in general, men and women in the congregation. And that's chapter two. He moves on to chapter three to give qualifications to those who would serve in a position of a quote unquote bishop or overseer. And Brian, I think you may be talking about that later. That's verses one through seven. And then continuing in verses eight through 13, he talks about the qualification of those who are called quote unquote deep. Now, now, Brian, if you want to, if, if you'll get ready, uh, in a few moments, we'll have you read First uh, Timothy 3 through 13. Um, okay, I'll get that queued up. Yeah, thanks, sir. So, but, but before we go, there was kind of pause for a little bit, because we need to kind of understand a little bit of groundwork, what this term deacon 
means. And if you dig a little bit, the underlying Greek term, and I'll, I'll probably mispronounce it, diakonos, diakonos. Now, if you notice, that sounds a lot like dia, deacon, and that's because our, our word, deacon, it, it's not a translation. It's not a meaning. It's more of a letter-for-letter letter transliteration uh, that really kind of obscures the meaning. So according to one resource I checked, uh, the word likely comes from a root verb, which means to run on errands, uh, depending on where it's found in scripture. And depending on your translation, you might find the word minister, uh, you might find the word servant, but simply speaking, the Greek word seems to mean, you know, one who executes, and this is a, a quote I found, quote, one who executes the command of another, like the servant of a master, or the servant of a king who performs various duties, like a waiter at a table who serves food and drink, end quote. So from this definition, we can learn a couple important distinctions about deacons compared to saints in general, or, or, or members in, in general. First of all, you know, a deacon is not a person in charge of the congregation. Okay, and they're they're not a, they're not a meant to be a leaders per se. They serve under the command of another. You know, based on the definition, um, they seem to have duties that are more oriented toward providing service to others, serving others, perhaps more of a physical nature. Uh, it's interesting that the verb form of that Greek word uh, is found over in Acts six, Acts chapter six, verse two. Uh, where the apostles draw a distinction between helping the congregation with spiritual things and helping the congregation with physical things. Of course, Acts 6, you know, they had a problem with providing benevolence to needy widows in the congregation uh, there in Jerusalem. And the apostles, you know, said, starting in verse 2, uh, well, it, the narrative starts, then the 12 summoned the multitude of the disciples. Again, there's another term, disciple. Uh, and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. That word serve, again, is the verb form that has the equivalent noun of, of deacon. Serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, that we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Here we have a distinction between members in general and those who are doing some kind of special service, perhaps of a physical nature, that the New Testament refers to as deacons. Um, Brian, any observations or, or comments on that before we uh, move on into the... Uh... Yeah, so as you kind of touched on, Jeff, really the key word there is definitely serve. And when, you know, we see God's wisdom in making sure the duties of the church are fulfilled, um, through specific positions, if you will, within the church. And so, you know, as we're going to see here in 1 Timothy 3, whether it's deacons or elders, you know, all of the positions that God set up, uh, really in both covenants, if you think about it, and yes, we live under the law of Christ today, but even under the old law, he always expected the men who would fill those positions to be righteous men of the highest moral and spiritual character. And I think we'll see that in the qualifications. And so that's what God expected. So over in 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 8, here talking about the qualifications for a deacon, it says, Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Brian. Now, let's kind of, you know, very quickly, and, you know, this could be a study, a whole podcast unto itself, but let's just kind of very quickly look at a couple of the uh, key requirements. And again, these are requirements, musts. So, Brian, let's just kind of play a little game here. So, how would you answer the following? First of all, are there any special qualifications? Or can any saint or member be a deacon? 
Yeah, definitely. Several uh, qualifications that we just read, right? And, and including a requirement to first be tested before they're allowed to serve as deacon. Exactly. And, and you're serving as a deacon. Or, it, it, the language is a little bit weird, you know, serving as a servant. But it, it's kind of a special. I mean, you know, all Christians are supposed to be, in, to some degree, some manner, you know, helpful to one another. Okay, got that. But this is like a special role. Okay, let's let's move forward a little bit more. Let's, let's tighten it up a little bit. Must they be married? Yes. Must they be men? Yes. And finally, you know, if we're going to use Bible terms and Bible ways, should we really respect what the Holy Spirit says here, Paul? Absolutely. There, there's nothing in the context that would indicate it's you know, specific to Timothy's situation or specific to a particular congregation or country or time period. Uh, Brian, any other thoughts before we move on to the next role? Yeah, you know, Jeff, when a congregation finds qualified men to serve in this role, it's such a benefit for a congregation, you know, to help ensure the elders and the congregation are being supported and ultimately that the the Lord's work is being done. Well, and and, and that's a good point. And, and, you know, mentioned in passing, you know, deacon, servant, potentially, with physical things based on Acts 6, quote unquote, serving tables, you know, providing, you know, evidence to the, the needy you know, Christian widows there in Jerusalem. Some people might say, well, what, what does that really, how does that really equate, okay. uh, you know, deacons within a congregation? And so, you know, simply speaking, you may have some men that might be, you know, in charge of the treasury or in charge of the building or, or in charge of the, you know, the grounds around the building or, uh, paying the bills or those sorts of, you know, physical kinds of things that kind of, if you will, allow the, as we'll get into in a few moments, the elders to focus on more spiritual matters, not be worried about, you know, cleaning the building and mopping floors and <laughs> those sorts of uh, more routine matters, if, if that makes sense. I'll toss it back at you. Yeah, and the... You know, when we look at both the office of the elder and deacons, it, to me, it really just says there are certain things that the church, that God expects the church to do. And certainly when it comes to all things spiritual, you know, God set up the office of elders, the eldership, to really oversee and make sure from a spiritual perspective that a congregation is doing everything that God expects and that they are spiritually healthy. When you look at the office of deacons, you know, they're assisting the elders to complete things that might otherwise take the elders away from their primary responsibility. So going back to the example uh, you talked about, Jeff, where you had a situation where widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food and the elders were busy uh, with spiritual matters, really. So, you know, the wisdom that they received or the guidance from the Holy Spirit was, you know, choose some men that meet the qualifications that we just read and set them up to be able to assist the elders. And so now when we shift gears and we talk about the eldership, well, as I just mentioned, these are the overseers of a local congregation. So when you look at the Greek word translated elder in the Bible, it comes from the word presbyteros. And the word pastor comes from the Greek word poimen. So both of these terms are referring to men who are overseers or shepherds of the church. In fact, you see a lot of synonyms that are used throughout the Bible for this particular position. So some translations and some Bibles will have the word bishop or overseer or pastor or shepherd or presbyter or elder. So those terms are really synonymous. They are describing this same position. So what is the work of the elders? Well, 1 Timothy, or excuse me, 1 Peter, I should say, 5.2 tells us that the work of the elders is to, quote unquote, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers. And so when you really dig into what the New Testament teaches, and for the sake of time, uh, we won't have time to go through all the responsibilities and how those are accomplished. However, uh, here in a minute, we'll point you to an article on our website where there's really a comprehensive uh, study on not only the qualifications to be an elder, but their work and how that's conducted. So 
uh, we'll, we'll get you uh, a link or, or we'll, we'll tell you where to go to find more information. So anyhow, just at a high level, though, Jeff, when we talk about, you know, hey, what are the responsibilities kind of at a high level? Well, things like, you know, making sure the truth of God's word is taught and adhered to Titus 1 9. Um, you know, their oversight includes making sure the evangelist is preaching the truth and performing the word that God expects for him to perform. Uh, the elders are responsible, as we see over in Acts chapter 20 and Paul's warning to the elders from the church at Ephesus to ensure that false teachers do not come in or rise up from within a church uh, to start teaching false doctrine. Uh, the elders you know, have a responsibility to teach and admonish the members uh, to help the church grow through teaching, preaching the whole counsel of God and etc. Uh, so, Jeff, let me pause here for a sec to, to give you a chance to add anything else that you'd like. I mean, it's a pretty wide list, right, uh, that elders have or, uh, as far as responsibilities go to the church. Oh, and you kind of see that to some degree in the various synonyms that you mentioned. Uh, not only kind of their responsibility, but to begin to hint at some of their qualifications. Even the basic term of elder carries with it the sense of an older person, more wise, mature, spiritually speaking, shepherding the flock, you know, feeding the flock, protecting the flock, you know, flock of sheep, etc. You know, overseeing, you know, ruling over, and we'll you know touch on that a little bit more, probably a little bit later on about you know, ruling in terms of protecting and guiding needed rebuking etc but not ruling as dictators and we maybe talk a little bit more about that in a few moments but um yeah a lot of responsibility heavy responsibility definitely is very sobering but to your point i'm glad you brought up the analogy to the shepherd you know jesus used parables and analogies a lot to help people from physical illustrations to understand a spiritual application and so when it comes to elders being a shepherd you're exactly right you think about a physical shepherd watching over a flock of sheep. Well, spiritually, that's what an eldership is doing. And as you pointed out, you, know, you think about, as we're going to read here in a minute, in fact, Jeff, if you could, uh, I think we might still be in First Timothy 3, right? But here in just a sec, I was just going to have you read verses 1 through 7. That, that kind of covers the qualifications for an elder. Uh, but one of the things that we'll see there is, you know, as you touched on, you know, the qualifications require this to be an experienced man who is well-seasoned, if you will, in the truth someone who is confident and would like the position of an elder and embraces the role of helping a church to not only grow spiritually, but to remain on the straight and narrow, so to speak. So, uh, Jeff, you want to read those qualifications for us in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7? This is a faithful saying. Man desires the position of a bishop. Uh, that's my translation, or overseer. He desires a good work. Bishop then must be blameless husband of one wife, temperate, reminded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, gentle, not quarrelsome, covetous, and who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. Man, for if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? But a novice, up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony from those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach, snare. Of so that when we when we look at you know where does the Bible tell us what the qualifi what, what qualifications must be met for a man that desires the office of an elder? We see it's here in First Timothy three, as Jeff just read in verses one through seven. We also have over in Titus chapter one verses five through nine qualifications listed there as well, many of them the same, but it says here, beginning in verse 5 of Titus 1, uh, Paul says, For this reason I left you in Crete, speaking to Titus, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders, notice plural term there, we'll get back to that, and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a, if a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, 
that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. So Jeff, when we look at these qualifications, much like we saw with a deacon, this is somebody that has to be blameless, you know, somebody not quick-tempered, somebody who loves the word, it says, you know, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught that he might be able by sound doctrine to exhort and to convict. So when you think about, you know, the sobering and important responsibility that an elder has, you must have men who are not only trustworthy, but who are godly and committed to doing what God would have them to do. Those are all very good points. The other thing I might just go back slightly, some people might say, well, yeah, our congregation has elders, but we also have a bishop or or maybe not our congregation has elders and a bishop, but our, our region has a bishop, a bishop over elders. But as you noted in Titus 1.5, Paul talks about appointing elders, and then seamlessly he goes in verse 7 for a bishop. So again, synonymous terms, not two different offices. Yeah, I appreciate you pointing that out. In fact, here in a minute, we also want to talk a little bit about you know, how many churches today just have one man that kind of runs the whole show who they may call a pastor or, you know, whatever else. But before we do that, Jeff, let's talk a little bit about accountability. You know, when you and I were kind of exchanging notes for this particular podcast, one of the notes that you slipped in here that I'd like you to talk about, because I think it's a good point, and that is, you know, how when you think about who are elders accountable to, well, we know ultimately they're accountable to Christ, and we'll we'll take a look at that in just a minute. But they're also accountable, Jeff, to the congregation as well, right? And you want to talk a little bit about that? Right. So, I mean, some people may say, well, yes, we have leaders in our congregation, you know, priest or father or pastor or whatever. And we pretty much, you know, they're the leader, we're the followers, we do what they say. And, you know, if if they say something something that's wrong and we follow them well that's that's okay because that's on them because you know they're the official leaders if they get it wrong they'll be judged but you know we're okay because we're just simply you know following orders but that's not what is revealed in the bible um if you go back to first timothy and again was kind of instructing Timothy of, of, you know, doing different things in the, the congregation where he happens to be. You'll notice if you go over to chapter 5 of 1 Timothy, and again, he's talking again about elders. Uh, verse 17, let the elders who rule be counted worthy of double honor to those who labor in word and deed. But then he notice, you may notice if you look down to verse 19, do not receive an accusation against an elder. Let me pause there for a second. Some congregations might say, yeah, period. Yeah, yeah, you don't accuse the elder. Elders in charge. You know, they are rulers. They're not. Yeah, you can't question them, right? Well, some might say you can't question an elder. Right, exactly. Uh, or if, if they're not only if they're teaching wrong, but if they're living wrong. Or if they're living in sin or, or doing things they shouldn't be, well, you know, that that's between them and God, etc. Well, paused intentionally because the verse does not stop there. Again, verse 19, do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. And then it goes on to instruct Timothy in the next verse, verse 20. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest may also here. So here we see an interesting, I don't know if the word is balance, or yes, indeed, the elders, bishops, are, you know, ruling over a local congregation to include ruling over evangelists as, as one of the members. Yet the evangelist has responsibility to confront the elders when they're doing something wrong. And if necessary, rebuke publicly for the rest of the congregation. And so there's like a check and balance there. You know, like with our, you know, US national government, we talk about branches of government and balance of power and checks and balances. There's a check and balance here as well. So, you know, rulers are not dictators. Uh, I mean, elders are not dictators. Elders are not elders for life. They are accountable, as you said, not only to 
of Jesus as the chief shepherd, but also to the evangelist and, and the members. So there's a check and balance there. Yeah, and ultimately, when you think about elders, and I know you're going to talk about evangelists here in a little bit, deacons, we already talked about, <clears throat> they're all just saints. Uh, they're just held to the same standards. Now, granted, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about teachers and how there's a stricter judgment and so forth. Yes. However, at a base level, the same standard that God put in place for Christians, for saints, as far as the idea of two or three witnesses, you know, anything that you bring before a church, uh, an accusation, let's say, that you would bring before a church, it has to be well established. And so we see God's wisdom by requiring two or three witnesses, because you could certainly see one person has a quote unquote beef with an elder. Well, now it's, you know, them against the elder. Whereas, you know, if somebody's in sin and a Christian brings that sin to their attention, as it mentions here, before the, something like this could be brought before the church, you need to have it established. You need to make sure you have the two or three witnesses. And so, as we talked about, ultimately the elders are to be in subjection to Christ, much like every other saint, right? Because Christ has authority over the church. And in fact, he himself, Jesus in Matthew 28, verse 18 said, uh, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So, you know, as we read about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, elders, deacons, saints, everybody, all of us will ultimately be judged based on how we've lived our lives. And ultimately that authority has been given to Jesus. And so we're, we're all held accountable to him. Good points. One one thing I might go back. Um, I don't know if you were going to make this point about the qualifications, um, but as we've noticed both in First Timothy three and in Titus one, yes, there are qualifications requirements, if you will. Um, and at least within our modern culture, there's at least a couple of them. The people go, "Whoa, wait a minute, what?" Uh, and specifically, what I'm thinking of must be a man, must be married must have children that have, you know, some sense of, you know, solid reputation as well. And I know within some religious groups, again, with, you know, women's liberation movement, um, you will have, uh, you know, women uh, as quote-unquote elders or, or bishops, um, sometimes unmarried women, sometimes unmarried men. But as we see here again, as, as Paul is instructing both Titus and Timothy, it's, it's not time limited. It's not geography limited. Um, it's timeless. Yeah, appreciate you bringing that up. Those, you know, we see abuses, right? Like we do with anything, unfortunately. Uh, but you know, it's interesting. We have a really good study on the website. We'd like to point our listeners to. If you go to the letter index, so uh, if you're on our homepage, you'll see an alphabetical index there. You can just click on the letter E. If you're using a mobile browser. You can click on the little three-button menu and go to Topics, choose E for Elders. And then there's an article called The Eldership, where, as I mentioned earlier, it goes into detail on the qualifications, what they actually mean. Uh, some are straightforward, some are not as much. Anyhow, it goes into detail on that, and then once again, what the work of the elders are. So encourage everybody to look at that because it's certainly – important to understand for men that are in this position what the qualifications are. A couple other quick points here, Jeff, and then we'll move on to teachers and evangelists. Not every local congregation, however, as much as you know, it was God's intention that there be elders appointed in every church, much like we saw Paul instruct Titus, there are times, especially for newer, younger, older congregations, whatever the case might be, where you just don't have enough qualified men for the position. So then what do you do? Well, you know, decisions and work still needs to be done. And so, you know, men generally will have a meeting, for instance, with all the men of the church to make and discuss the work of the church, make decisions for the church. Uh, so you kind of have to do that, right? That work still has to go on. Just wanted to mention that because we're not going to always, not every congregation, Jeff's always going to have qualified men, right? So. I, I think that's a good point. And, and you know, certainly having the men come forward and volunteer and try to come to consensus, et cetera, um, is, is the best you can do in that kind of a situation. You certainly would not want to fall into the trap of saying, well, we've got some guys um, that don't meet all the qualifications, but they're the best we have, so we'll just go ahead and make them the elders. No, we've got some guys, and yes, one guy is married, uh, but others are not. 
one guy is blameless, but the others are not. You know, uh, as an aggregate, <laughs> we can cobble together a group of men that collectively meet the requirements, but not every single one. Well, you don't want to do that either because these qualifications are individual level. But yeah, I appreciate you pointing out that exception. You know, you know, shouldn't shouldn't be the case if you can avoid it. But if you can't avoid it, it's the most expedient thing to do. Yeah, and in the wor- one of the worst scenarios that could occur is, as you pointed out, just kind of shoehorning somebody in there because, well, they're close. And you know, we could certainly go off on a whole study about, well, when you look at all of these qualifications, they have to nail every one of them, so to speak, right? Or they have to be very strong. Uh, you know, it really starts as it talks about with the desire to be an elder. And, you know, there are scenarios where you have congregations, a man really doesn't have the desire, but they're like, we think you would be great. And they talk him into it. Well, that's another scenario where you can just run into a problem if you don't have somebody that openly embraces and seeks the office and meets the qualifications. Right. And that's a good point. Let's, let's pause there for a moment, because on the one hand, you want to have someone who is willing but you don't necessarily want to have someone that seeks the glory and the power yeah the right he wants it for the right reasons right exactly and the other thought i might throw in there is because of their role because of their responsibilities they're going to be on the to speak the pointy end of the spear when it comes to dealing with people or confronting people and that exposes them to a lot of ridicule or abuse or false charges and so someone would really want that office or or or, or desire that office again not for glory but to be able to have a kind of thick skin so to speak to endure the extra grief that position would, would bring upon itself by naturally doing what it, what what he's supposed to be doing according to the Bible. Yeah, and you know, we probably all have had a chance hopefully to talk to elders, you know, been under elders so forth. And it's not a glamorous position as you talked about, Jeff. I mean, sharpen the spear, you know, it they they deal with some very very difficult things and normally the elders that I've talked to that have quote unquote desired, you know, the office of the elder, it's really to ensure that God's will is being done, that a church is strong, that a church grows. And they realize that there will be some pain because they have to deal with people who are sinful, false teachers that are rising up, what's going on in the world that might be creeping into church, on and on and on. And so you look at that and you think almost the opposite, right, Jeff? Like, I don't want any part of that. Sounds like, well, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it's very commendable, isn't it? Because these are men who love the Lord and are like, I am willing to suffer to ensure God's will is done. And we said earlier about, you know, ruling over the flock. In many ways, the, I don't know quite how to express it, fate of a congregation in some ways rests within the hands of the eldership. Absolutely. If you have weak elders, we'll tend to have a weak congregation, strong elders, strong congregation. Generally speaking, if, if elders, you know, go off in... Uh, apostasy, if you will, or start teaching false doctrine, more often than not, the congregation will tend to follow them. It's not excusing the congregation, but that that's just the tendency. So it's a very important, very critical goal. Not that we expect these kinds of men to be sinlessly perfect, uh, but it is an awesome responsibility. Definitely is. So one other point I wanted to make here, Jeff, and then I'll hand it over to you to talk about teachers and evangelists as the next thing we read about in the Bible. But that is, and that is, you know, unfortunately, many religious bodies today have a position of what they might call pastor, uh, which is usually one man who oversees the entire church. Now, as we've talked about, and as we see in scripture, anytime that the, the position of elder is filled, it's always with more than one man. And just at a high level, we also see God's wisdom here, right? You don't want one man with, quote unquote, all the power, so to speak. But when you have more than one, then you have checks and balances. You have discussion about spiritual matters. You just have a, a, a you know an oversight as God would have it to be. And so for these religious bodies that have this position of pastor, it's so critical to realize nowhere in Scripture does it authorize one man 
to oversee the whole church. So for instance, in Titus chapter one and verse five, as we talked about earlier, Titus was commanded by the apostle Paul to appoint elders in every city. We're also told uh, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders in every church when they were in Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. Uh, in fact, we see over in Ephesians chapter four and verse 11, it says, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. So, you know, each of these, as we can see, are distinct roles for the Lord. Uh, and, and we don't ever read of a scenario, Jeff, where it's just one man who performs all these key functions and in essence leads the entire church. Right. And back to the concept of, you know, check and balance. The other thing I might mention, there are religious groups that, as you say, have a, a single pastor kind of in charge, not necessarily married. You know, again, in some ways, it's more like it's the preacher, right? It's it's the main preacher, the main spokesman. Yeah, often and, is right. Yeah, right. and he may or may not be married, but he's looked to as the pastor, as the shepherd, as as the person who is shepherding the flock. And as we've figured out so far, that's not the Bible pattern. For as you said, it's not just one because of you know single person uh, lack of uh, check and balance there. Uh, but also has certain qualifications to include being the husband of one wife, uh, et cetera. The full pattern <laughs> that we see within scriptures. So you want to talk about um, true uh, teachers and evangelists? Yeah, so that kind of seems to be the last group of people, if you will, that we read about in the scriptures in a local church are teachers and evangelists. Right. And like with elders, well, these are just members. Elders, deacons, and you know, kind of serving, kind of special roles, and like with elders, uh, a number of different terms, uh, which has some kind of subtle, you know, nuanced, different meanings. So for starters, you know, throughout the New Testament, we can read where people are mentioned in connection with being preachers, teachers, evangelists, a number of different terms. A couple examples: Acts thirteen, verse one. Now, in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 28. And, of course, this is within the context of spiritual gifts. Quote, God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, the miracles, and then he goes on. Uh, Ephesians 4, 11, he gave himself some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Now, here, here we've got kind of two terms working together: teachers, evangelists. So teachers, Greek word. Uh, I'm going to probably butcher this one as well. Didaskalos. Didaskalos. The definition. It's somewhat of a general term. The word evangelist, though, is a somewhat different term. It's Greek evangelistes. And if you notice, evangelist, evangelistes, again, here's another one of those Greek words the translators chose not to translate, but to bring over letter by letter. Kind of obscures the meaning. Uh, the basic meaning is a bringer of good tidings or a bringer of good news, someone who proclaims a gospel message of salvation. Perhaps then by implication, concentrating more on preaching to the lost. Uh, as opposed to a teacher, perhaps being a more general term. Uh, Titus 2.3. Uh, the older women, likewise, that they may be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine. Teachers, good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands and to love their children. But, you know, at a very base level, we've got, you know, teachers somewhat in general. And evangelists, which similar, uh, but maybe a little bit more specialized on preaching or proclaiming as opposed to perhaps teaching, you know, interacting. Um, Brian, any, any thoughts there before we uh, start talking about qualifications? Yeah, it can be a little confusing, right? As you mentioned, when you think about teaching the truth, no doubt evangelist has that primary responsibility, but there are certainly other teachers, as you pointed out, right? Young women, uh, men, uh, you know, a lot of congregations will have a Bible class before their worship service. And so there will be teachers that handle those uh, responsibilities. So anyhow, uh, definitely uh, something for us to take note of. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's, let's talk qualifications for a little bit. Uh, it's interesting 
um, that in some ways, all Christians ought to be teaching others. Um, interesting passage, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, where uh, the writer of Hebrews is, is getting on to his audience to a degree. Though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you. Again, the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. There's almost an expectation that a, a Christian over time, as, as he or she learns more, can then turn around and help explain or, or, or teach others, generally speaking. Um, and yet it's interesting at the very same time, if we want to talk, if you will, more, quote, formal teacher or official teacher, uh, James 3, 1 two or, or james chapter three verses one and two something more restrictive to say my brethren let not many of you become teachers knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment for we all stumble in many things one does not stumble in word he is a perfect man also able to bridle the whole body we see in general christians should be teaching when it comes to someone filling perhaps an official capacity as a teacher, then we need to be somewhat careful because there's a quote-unquote, you know, stricter judgment. And since we saw women over in uh, Titus 2.3, older women teaching, and yet at the same time, we see some qualified uh, restrictions on that as well, um, based on 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. The Holy Spirit, through Paul, says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man to be in silence. Older women teaching younger women? Perfectly fine. Older women, you know, teaching a Bible class with men present? Not. Older women teaching from the pulpit with men present? Not according to the pattern. Uh, so, Brian, if you want to uh, tee up Second uh, Timothy chapter 4, one through five, we'll see some other qualifications, if you will. And of course, contextually, you have Paul, an, old, an apostle, um, and a teacher, generally speaking, uh, instructing Timothy as a younger teacher, evangelist, preacher, uh, and giving him certain charges, certain things he needs to be careful about. Uh, Brian, do you have that? Second Timothy four, one through five? Yes, beginning in verse 1, it says, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort, with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come where they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Thank you, Brian. Now, let's note, like we did with uh, deacons, some of the key requirements uh, from this passage. And there's other passages, of course. But from this passage, Brian, how, how would you answer the following? First of all, are there evangelists, or maybe I should say, what are these evangelists or teachers supposed to, quote-unquote, preach? Definitely the Word of God, not their own opinions. Right. Good point. What about those who focus primarily on talking about positive things, like oh, God and God's love and Jesus and his sacrifice, and we should love Jesus, Jesus loves us? Uh, what about those kinds of things? Always a, a positive, uplifting them. Yeah, it has to be a balance, right? So he talked about convincing, rebuking, and exhorting. Sometimes those are negative things, right? But they need to be preached. That's part of the whole council. Point. Are they always supposed to preach what is popular? Absolutely not. In fact, often what they preach isn't popular. <laughs> Good <somebody>. point. <laughs> well, and notice in this passage, uh, there is a, some people don't want sound doctrine. According to their own desires, they have itching ears that they love to have scratched. Um, and they'll, they'll turn away from the truth, turn aside to fables. And so, yeah, preachers who cater to the audience, it's what the audience wants to hear, often will very quickly depart from the truth. And, and one more uh, question real quick. They need to have what I might call thick skin. Definitely, yeah. In fact, you see terms like all long-suffering, endure afflictions, 
no doubt when you're telling people they're in sin, a certain percentage of them might attack the messenger, so to speak. Exactly. And, and similar to what we had with elders, bishops, et cetera, you know, trying to guide the flock. Um, and, and in some cases, people, members, you know, in the flock refuse to be guided and start stirring up trouble. And they have to deal with those situations. And it often is not very pleasant. It requires a of a thick skin, a love for truth and a love for God and a love for souls. Uh, Brian, anything else you want to add in regarding uh, teachers and evangelists? Well, you know, those who perform these tasks, Jeff, they really have a sobering responsibility and, you know, they're going to be held accountable for what's taught. So, you know, therefore it's in all of our interest to make the effort to learn the truth and all, you know, spiritual matters um, and fortunately, as we see in Second Peter chapter one and verse three, God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So now it's just a matter of us soberly and really, you know, understanding that we're going to be held uh, accountable for what we teach. So let's make sure that that we understand, you know, what should be taught and do so properly. In some ways, from a, a local congregation perspective, I think that pretty much covers the you know various bases of you know saints in general. Speaking, some having you know specialized roles like elders with all the synonyms, deacons, preacher, teacher, you know, and and those you know synonyms as well. So maybe at this point we kind of go above the local level. Yes, I agree, Jeff. Uh, that's what we want to talk about next: is going above the local congregation. And so we want to encourage our listeners to listen to next week's podcast, which will be part two of this one, where we talk about church autonomy. In other words, a local church being self-governing, or should they be guided by some oversight or organization uh, at a higher level? Also, we will answer questions that are submitted to our BibleQuestions.org website about the organization of the church. So we encourage everybody to tune back in next week for part two of this study on the organization of the church. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Bible Questions podcast. We invite you to visit our website at biblequestions.org, where you can find over a thousand scripture-filled articles on a wide variety of Bible topics, along with about two dozen free Bible study lessons and other Bible study aids. Plus, you can submit a Bible question to us to get a personal response within a couple of days. Check it all out at biblequestions.org.